ways. I know how they feel. They're great. They're loyal. They want to bang for their buck. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Larshcast, Season 3, Episode 8. The Canucks are riding high, currently on a four-game win streak, and the skies have started to clear for Canuck Nation. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of talking to the man behind Behind the Mask, legendary commentator and retired NHL goalie, Kelly Rudy. Hold up. You, you are with the Larsh cast. It's a, it's a short bench today, so we'll be running quick shifts. Uh, just uh, Ryan Caramel and Tej Dolly while coming at you today. What a segue. Uh, you know, I, I try my best, man. It, I don't even pre-plan these things. So sometimes... Bruce is just, having an impact on and off the ice in the fan base and with the players. I'm feeling energized now. I'm feeling like I can be my true self and honest because Bruce showed me that it's okay. You know, I mean, he showed me the way. Bruce, there it is. Uh <laughs> And, uh, you know, we're talking to Kelly Rudy here coming up. You're going to hear that interview, but uh, uh, a big fan of Bruce Boudreau. I mean, uh, it's hard yeah. to find somebody in this league that isn't. And uh, that speaks volumes to his character and the type of coach that he is. But uh, Kelly said some illuminating things to me personally, uh, especially about how uh, it's nice to have that honesty uh, in a coach and, and that endearing personality. But sometimes you have to be careful to walk that fine line where you don't you know, you're not too honest where you end up throwing a player under the bus. And especially in a market like Vancouver with where media is, they're just fishing for, for storylines. And they're just, you know, uh, throwing little danglers out there waiting for you to bite. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, I love that interview so much. Kelly Rudy, what an honor to speak to him. It was, it was an absolute pleasure, man. He, uh, he gave us a little bit of extra time, which was uh, fantastically courteous and, and had some, some absolutely great answers. I think, uh, I think the, the fan base is really, really going to enjoy this one. And there's some pretty unique insights to the, to the new faces that are in, uh, in Canucks uh, brass now as well, too. Exciting times in Canucks Nation, eh? 4-0 under Bruce Boudreau. The chat that we started in the Larshider section is going crazy around this market. I mean, I, I was coming out of the game the other day uh, and I saw 50 or 60 year old starting the chat in the in the concourse. Bruce, there it is. And I'm just loving life right now as a Canucks fan. Uh, but we can't get ahead of ourselves because we still we have a long climb ahead of ourselves here uh, to get out of this near basement position that the team put themselves in and, and has found themselves in. But I mean, if I were to ask any fan out there right now whether or not they, they believe this team could come back and could can claw their way back into the playoff race, I don't think there'd be a single fan that would say no. I mean, yep. maybe some members of the media would, but <laughs> I don't think there's a single Canucks fan out there in Canucks Nation that would tell you, looking you dead straight in the eyes, that no, I don't think they have a chance. So that's the way it is right now as a Canucks fan. I love it. You are with the Larsh cast, Ryan Cattermall and Tej Dollywall, and we are joined by the great Kelly Rudy uh, of Hockey Night in Canada, behind, behind the mask, uh, you name it, basically. He's been a part of it. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and giving us some of your time today, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm doing well. My pleasure. Um, man, that's a long time ago, behind the mask. I'd almost forgotten that part or that segment of my life. It was... Uh, uh transformative for me because it uh, you know as as you guys remember that segment it was just usually scott russell or scott oak or elliot friedman on occasion and myself for an entire uh show western uh based and that was uh just such a fantastic time in my life and i really enjoyed it 
Well, it's funny you nailed it. Western based. I think that's probably why it sticks with me so much as Western Canadian hockey fans. We don't uh, always feel like we're very well represented in the market. So maybe that's why it, uh, it, it rings so fondly with me as well too. So uh, it's great to hear it was a formative time for you. It definitely was, uh, was a favorite of a lot of the fans out here as well too. Um, moving, moving to the Canucks talk here, because we've only got a short window with you. I, I just want to, to get your sense of, of, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of changes in Canucks nation and, and a lot of things, uh, uh, that, that may still transpire. And, and I just want to see that the team's riding a four game win streak. They're going for five. Now, obviously the players on the ice have to play the game, but how much of this would you attribute to having that new, it's weird calling Boudreaux a fresh face, but that fresh face coach behind the bench and, and how much would you attribute it to just having the reins off as well? Or, or, or what's your sense of what's going on right now? Okay. I'll address that in a sec. The first thing I want to make clear is uh, I'm not throwing Jim or Travis under the bus because I think they're great hockey people and uh, they will land somewhere else and they'll have success. They are uh, really good people. And, but unfortunately it doesn't always work out for good people in certain situations. And so, but moving forward, when you get a guy like Bruce and I've known Bruce since the early eighties, he's a, he's a really easy guy to like and to follow. He's uh, he motivates in a different way. Uh, He really makes you feel good about yourself. Uh, He understands that he was a player that had a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And so he understands that with a player as well. And he knows how to manage that. So Bruce was the guy that uh, not only did I play against in the minors and a little bit in the NHL, but uh, I really got to know him, excuse me, when he would uh, make guest appearances on Hockey Night in Canada with us. And so I got to know him behind the scenes also. And so uh, I really like him. I'm not surprised they're having success. And then, of course, uh, Jim... Uh, Rutherford is a phenomenal hockey mind and uh, he he gets it right he understands uh, the process uh, what you have to do to get the proper pieces in uh, place and so this is an exciting time for the Canucks uh, organization and the fan base because it's going it's moving in the right direction. I want to follow up with in terms of the coaching change here, especially in regards to, to certain star players and for us it's you know a guy like Elias Pettersson who was obviously struggling yeah. in the first uh, little bit of the season. He seems to be coming alive a little bit. He seems to, you know, be more more fresh and, and feeling good out there and, and getting his confidence back. Um, how much can a how much of an impact can a coaching change have on a on a, on a singular player um, or maybe two you know players or so um, in, in in regards to things not working out uh, and the vision of the previous coach maybe not working out for the the style of play uh, that a player can play or can uh, wants to emulate. So, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, that's a complicated question, and it takes a, a long, thorough answer because there's a lot in that. So, I hope I uh, touched on all the points I want to, and I hope it. I, I hope I'm clear to you guys. Um, so, here's the thing with a coaching change. Uh, most often, uh, the players can sense it, and Elliot and I talked about that uh, before the change was made. That it looked pretty obvious that the players were waiting for something to happen. Uh, oftentimes. Uh, when the team and the players are in that situation, it appears uh, just when you're looking at the players lose energy. Um, they look lackadaisical. Um, they look lethargic. But trust me, they're tr- they, at that time, you're trying your best. It's just not happening. And you have all this negative body language and you have all these thoughts in your head and 
it's a, it's a very complicated thing to sort of work through. And, and so when the coaching change is made, this is where it really, uh, you really have to dig down. And I listened to Rutherford in his uh, press conference. He most likely isn't going to look at doing changes until January 31st when he gets an idea of what his team might be uh, right now in the current uh, uh, rendition or what it looks like. Uh, The thing is, if I'm not mistaken, I I think I'm I'm right, but January 31st, between now and then, there's 23 games that they're going to have. So the important thing about that message is that typically when a coaching change is made, you can't look at the first 10 games. It could be seven games. It could be 15, whatever that number is. But my magic number is usually 10 games simply because you can be easily fooled by two things. Uh, The wins and or individual uh, performances Um, because oftentimes there's a coaching change and then the players get rejuvenated, energized, more focused, all these little things. And so uh, you might have immediate results, um, but oftentimes, again, when that number is maybe 10 games, 15 games, then things seem to settle back to what you truly have. And so when Rutherford talks 23 games, he will have a better indication not to get fooled by the first 10 games because uh, we've all been around this game for so long that that can be a dangerous road. All of a sudden you, you have players that are playing better team results and you might go, okay, well, actually I really like the team. I like this particular player that I didn't really know much about. Uh, he surprised me. He's better than I thought, but you might have a different answer in a month and a half. And so that's where I think this whole thing becomes very complicated and you can't quickly make moves. Now, uh, we know Jim isn't typically a patient guy, but in this process, he has to be just to understand his team a little bit more. I hope that sort of covers a lot of the things about the difficulty in coming in fresh and what you might see and might not see. No, I, that, that, that makes it pretty clear. And, I, and actually that, that really sums it up nicely as well, too. And, and you kind of mentioned uh, that January deadline of seeing where this team sits. Uh, I know it's tough to tell, given the fact that it's kind of in a tale of two teams. We've got the last four games in comparison to the, the start of the season. But what's your sense of where this team actually sits in terms of the Western Conference and the Pacific Division? Can they be a, a contender? Or are they a just make the playoffs team? Or, or what are your thoughts on that based on the, the current composition? Uh, I hesitate because uh, contender might be a stretch right now, yeah. but I certainly think they should be a playoff uh, team. Uh, they should be they should be fighting for a playoff spot every year, uh, just based on their individual talents. Now, uh, I would agree with Rutherford again that there are holes in the lineup, but you can cover up holes, and uh, you know you can you can find ways to mask some problems, and in particular. Uh, when you have a goaltender like Demko. I mean, he's phenomenal, right? He's going to be a star in this league for the next uh, eight or ten years. And so you've got that covered. Um, But you just need more commitment from individuals. Uh, Certain players are just stars, like Quinn Hughes is a star. Uh, Pedersen should be, uh, for whatever reason. He lost that swagger that we're all so – enamored by right when he first came in and he did things that uh, uh, we were thrilled with and then he lost that and you've got to find a way to get it back and maybe it's slowly starting to appear again but 
I do think this is a uh, it's a good team that should be in the hunt every year, and for whatever reason they're not. But you have to uh, accept where you are, and now you just have to uh, find ways to get better and better. I, I totally agree, and it's interesting you, you talk about uh, PD and his regression, and and the fact that he should be a superstar. And I had a I had a question here, and you kind of teed me up perfectly, but I'm going to take it from a bit of a different angle. Uh, a lot of times you see the way players are performing on the ice as an indicator of where their confidence level is at. We've seen a pretty quick transition from PD from uh, struggling to get a one-timer off a couple weeks ago to pulling off a, a Forsberg-esque move in the shootout the other night. Um, we've right. seen the, the Zagres Milano goal, you know, YouTubers like Pavel Barber. I'm, I'm just curious of what's your sense of a player trying that move to try and garner some confidence as an ex-goaltender and, and have you softened on any of that as a broadcaster, having to to, to talk about those plays visually and the impact they have on the fans? We, we're we're going to call this the Tortorella oh, question. 100%. <laughs> oh, 100%. I've been on board for a number of years. Uh, the the young players in our game have never been better. And, and I think this goes back, again, it's a deeper question and a deeper answer. This goes back to the hockey environment I'm going to say about 10 years ago, because prior to that, you know, for a young player coming into an organization, you had to so-called prove yourself. And that would be either spending more time in the minors, which I am on board with. I don't think time in the minors is a bad thing at all. But secondly, when you're with the, with the big team, you were usually on the third or fourth line, or you were the fifth or sixth defenseman. You weren't given key moments in a game and again, you had to do that, quote, uh, earn your ice time. I think now that they're sort of gifted their ice time a little bit earlier than before. And that's a good thing. Coaches trust the young players more than ever. So they get an opportunity and a good opportunity to show what they uh, can do. And with that opportunity, they're usually a little bit more confident. <clears throat> and so they try these things that uh, weren't, I guess, in our game uh, maybe five years ago or maybe a little bit longer. And so when you see it in the game, maybe some people are taken by surprise, but, but I like it. I, I think that uh, it's a new element and it, it brings a unique talent level to our game that we didn't, we might have seen it in practice. Now I'll say this, and I don't know if you guys saw me on Saturday, but in our pregame show, I was talking about uh, the Zegras uh, play to Milano and what I mentioned is that I did the first game this year. It was a Wednesday. I think it was October 12th. I did Winnipeg in Anaheim. And typically as a broadcaster, when I'm up there for warm up, I'm watching both teams and I'm trying to take stock of uh, line rushes, individuals, and so on. And the player that had my uh, undivided attention was Zegris because I had never seen a player uh, do these sorts of things in warm up with the puck. You know, I've seen a lot of great players and I've seen a lot of uh, players do unique individual things, but nobody to the level like Zegers. And mm -hmm. so that that in part had my attention on him where I truly understood this guy is special and I hope we get to see his uh, great individual talent shine. He, he might already have the best hands in the game. <laughs> He's a rookie. <laughs> he might. Um, he might. Like, here's another. Here's. I just. I should finish up on that. So, yeah. Uh, to your point, uh, I remember going into that game, and he was the quarterback on the Ducks power play. Now you know 
the improvement. They had the worst power play of the Ducks in 40 years or something, and now they're one of the top in the league. And to that point, it was Ryan Getzlaff that said to the coaching staff, because he had been the power play lead on that team uh, for so long, he said, listen, it's, it's Zegras. He's got the best hands in the league. We have to make sure we take advantage of that. And so he runs a power play now in, in Anaheim. And that tells you if a veteran is willing to give up that role for a young player, you know he's special. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Getzloff could have a future in coaching too, I think. He's, a, he's that good of a yeah. player, that good of a leader. But, okay, so I wanted to ask you as we wind down here um, – about the, the, we call it the I'm, tweet. I'm more time. Oh, you got more time? Okay, well, I'm still going to ask you this question now because I, I brought it up. We're going to ask you about the tweet, and we're talking, of course, about Francesco Aquilini's tweet uh, that blew up uh, Canucks Twitter and maybe maybe parts of hockey Twitter um, uh, t- the other day. I think it was yesterday. Um, Saturday night, sorry. Saturday night, great tweet about media and the hypocrisy in the media uh, in, in terms of the coverage when it co- comes to the team. Now, I, I know you saw the tweet. I want to hear your thoughts about an owner standing up for himself and standing up for an organization, but also your thoughts on the validity of the tweet itself and, and, and what you think about Vancouver media and the hypocrisy sometimes that as fans, we routinely come, ac- <clears throat> excuse me, come across and routinely, um, you know, acknowledge for better or worse. I mean, I, I've been advocating about, uh, more professional coverage around the team for a while. And I'm happy to see Francesco finally defend himself. But I, I want to know, if, you know, from your opinion, uh, as somebody in the both the hockey world as a former player and also as a current member of uh, a broadcast team, um, what were your thoughts? Uh, <clears throat> I said it Saturday night. An owner has uh, uh, the luxury, I guess. Uh, he can say anything he wants. Uh, that is... Uh, their prerogative. I've always been of that mindset. Now it's highly unusual. I will say that, but I've always been of the mindset that uh, an owner, uh, because he's in that situation can say whatever they choose to say. And so I'm cool with it. Now, in terms of the content, uh, again, that's his choice. Uh, I personally, I'm not picking on any, any media base. I'm, I'm not going down that road because many, I have many friends in every media base, whether it's Vancouver or uh, wherever. I don't influence what they say, and I don't uh, judge what a person says in their media duties or responsibilities. We all have a, uh, a belief, and we all follow our, our gut and our heart. So uh, the only thing I'll say to that is that uh, I thought it was a, a really – a brave thing for the owner to do. And uh, I move on from that. I, I think if an owner's putting his face out there um, as he has uh, recently, anyways, you know what? I, I think a fan base can follow that. Yeah. Well, and speaking of fan bases follow, I think your, your overall message of kind of not uh, mudslinging at other, other fan bases or media outlets is something that uh, maybe could uh, to take on in Vancouver and, and would be a good thing for this market as well, too. Uh, I just have a quick question about uh, we've seen Boudreaux throwing some chirps Rutherford's way about scoring his first NHL goal against him. And he was <laughs> promptly traded to the Leafs a week later and taking some credit for that. I personally, I love seeing this kind of banter in the media and between players and coaches and, and staff, uh, because I think 
you know, we're starved for a little bit of personality sometimes in the player interviews and all that. I'm just curious if you've ever had a similar situation where you had like a somebody who's gone on to be an iconic coach or something that maybe you had a unique first encounter with, or if there's maybe a player that you hear goalies talk about performing well against a certain player, if there's maybe a guy that you could talk about every time he came down the ice, you felt like he, you had his number or something like that. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, that works both ways. So there were certain <laughs> players that I, 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 I truly felt that uh, I had an advantage over, but there might be plenty, if not thousands of guys that probably felt the same way when they faced me. So, and I think it, I, I don't think you can, at least in my opinion and what I can recall, it was never career long. It might be right. uh, a, a month long, a season long, uh, there were times where I thought that every time Pavel Burry had a breakaway and he had plenty of them on me, that he had the upper hand. Yet there are other times where I really felt that uh, I had the better of, of Pavel. And uh, so maybe cyclical. Uh, there were times when uh, I really felt that I, uh, maybe a guy like Joe Newendike, he would go on a great run with me. I thought he was the best at deflections in the game at that mm -hmm. time. There are other times where I thought I, I had the upper hand on him, but uh, in terms of chirping, you you guys are gonna love Bruce. I mean, he is <laughs> yeah. a, he's a classic, right? And and I, I just love his personality. Yeah, and Me he's too. very yeah. endearing. And and he he yeah, you you get to like him immediately. And and the reason why you like him immediately is because he's not a phony. Some people yeah. you like immediately, and you learn later that they're phony. Mm -hmm. And uh, right. I, I remember Gary Joyce wrote an article about a particular person in the game many, many years ago. And he said something like, uh, you know, if you know this person for 30 minutes, you like him. If you, you know him for five years, you can't stand the guy. So, mm -hmm. uh, but Bruce is not that person. He's, uh, he's the same guy that I met in the early 80s. And uh, he's had an amazing career. And his chirping is genuine, right? Like, that's, <laughs> yes. uh, he's 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 that guy so uh i never really had a coach though that had that personality mm -hmm. maybe the closest might have been barry melrose um, mm. and barry's gone on to do amazing things uh as a broadcaster mm -hmm. but my you know I, I, it's no secret the guy that i learned the most from definitely was al arbor my first ever coach mm. in the national hockey league right. and unfortunately Oh, excuse me. Unfortunately for all the other coaches I ever had mm -hmm. in the National Hockey League, Al was my first. And so I had high standards about my expectations about my coach. But the mm -hmm. thing that I learned most about Al is that no matter how stern he might have been, how uh, to the point he may have been towards you or your play, every night when I put my head on my pillow, I knew Al cared about me. And mm -hmm. that's a special talent. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think uh, with Bruce, uh, what I like the the most is how refreshingly honest he is. Yeah, and, and you said endearing. Yeah. I think that those two go hand in hand. And it's funny he's, he's not. It's like he's not even trying to be funny or trying to chirp. It just comes across naturally right. because he's telling the truth. And and you know the truth is what it is. But uh, I, I wanted to follow up with a question but, about but you. You know what? To that point, hang yeah. on. Yeah, hang go on ahead. To that point though, I find that you've got to be careful there when you talk about being honest, because sometimes honesty when you're talking publicly is hurtful mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and that's where i think that's where i think that key balance is and that's why i love uh al arbor and barry melrose and tom webster and some of the other coaches that i had because they could be honest and they could share 
but I didn't ever feel as though they threw me under the bus. And mm. that's, that's, the, that's the key fine line when you're dealing about the relationship between a coach and a player. Yeah. Because once you feel that your coach has thrown you under the bus, that changes that coach-player dynamic. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, so yeah, just uh, I want to follow up with a question about your own pr- uh, playing career that Ryan asked uh, in terms of goal scores that you've faced. Um, this one is just in, in relation to the, the 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 one score that you know was the most dominant during your playing career. Because right now, if you ask all the goalies in the league, or especially the goalies that have been around the league a few years, they're all going to say Alexander Ovechkin because well, it's pretty obvious he's yeah. the greatest goal scorer maybe the game's yeah. ever seen. And and when all is said and done, he's going to have that number one spot. But in your opinion, who was that that pr- premier goal scoring talent? That number one that dominated the league during your time. Oh boy! Well, <laughs> fortunately for me, I'll address Ovechkin first. He does appear to be on that path, although we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. Going into the weekend, <laughs> he was 152 goals behind Wayne. That is that's a lot of goals to score, uh, yeah. and I know that. He has not had the career injury or the catastrophic injury that it seems every single player in history, other than maybe Patty Marlowe, uh, has had. And so uh, I'm not hoping for that. I'm just stating a fact. Uh, And secondly, now to answer the question, I was fortunate enough to play on a team with Mike Bossy and never played against him in a game. So he would have definitely in my era been – uh, the most dominant goal scorer until Wayne came along. Uh, I I was shocked by how Mike could score almost at ease in, in practice. Uh, he just had them. He had uh, forearms like I've never seen. He was extremely fit. When you look at Mike Bossy, you go, oh, my gosh, he looks like a scrawny little guy. He wasn't. He was uh, a rock-solid 205 pounds and one of the fittest human beings I've ever come across. Uh, Take uh, that in combination with his release and his deception. uh, That's what made him such a great goal scorer. And then I go to guys like, I know this will surprise people, but Tim Kerr. I played against him for a long, long time when he was in Philadelphia, and he just overwhelmed you with uh, his powerful shot. Then I'd go to uh, uh, Pierre LaRouche was really Difficult, Pavel Bure, because when mm. in Los Angeles, we played Vancouver so often. Brett Hull, Al McInnes, uh, the, the list is long. But, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to play in a game in which it was really high scoring, and I enjoyed that. I, I had no problem playing in a 7-4 game. Um, and so if you look at the goaltenders in my era, the stats don't look very uh, appealing, but I'll, I'll challenge anybody to say that uh, – we still had some pretty good goaltenders in my time. Uh, and we weren't as protected, not only because of the equipment, but the systems that uh, we now mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I look at the players today and, you know, I'll echo my comments before. The players have never been better and the skills set have never been better. Uh, but uh, goal scorers, uh, you know, they are hard to come by and unique ones uh, and special talents like, uh, Ovechkin and uh, some of the others in our game are uh, dry sidle, just so so impressive to watch. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah. right? I have to I have to follow up. One last question there, Kelly. Your greatest save that you ever made? Not not what people think about your saves, okay. but in your opinion, the greatest save that you ever made. 
Oh, easy. That's such an easy answer. So I had more spectacular, better saves. uh, But the the most important save I ever made was uh, in the game seven in Maple Leaf Gardens in the conference final series was tied, of course, three, three score was three, three with seven minutes to go. And Peter Zezel had an opportunity in the slot about 10 feet away from me. And I made, as I said, not the most spectacular, but the most important save of my life. I made a glove save off of Peter and we scored about three minutes later to take a four, three lead. And then Wayne scored about 30 seconds later, if I'm not mistaken, to get a five, three lead. And then we hung on for a five, four victory and we went to the Stanley cup final. So that was a very easy question for me. And that is the save I will of course, never forget. Great oh. answer too, because it didn't have some giant windmill action or you know <laughs> flashing it up or right? doing anything extra as well. Too Absolutely. just a clean game yep. saver save. Like that's a great answer right there. <laughs> I love it. Um, so we got one more question here before we let you go. And again, thank you so much for your time today, Kelly. Absolutely, thank you so much. Uh, but just wanted to move away quickly because it is such a gray area that that uh, most hockey fans, most of my buddies I know, we're not even really talking about it because it's such an ethereal thing almost at this point. But I want to get your sense of, of where Team Canada is at with the, the upcoming Olympics and the potential for boycott. Um, what have you heard on where that stands for, for Canada as, a, as an Olympic uh, team? And, and do you think there's a situation where we could perhaps see individuals refuse to participate or, or anything like that, or, or given how much is being made of the potential player safety concerns and all of the tensions and the hallway stuff and insert a thousand different reasons here. I just, if you, any updates or any insight yeah. on what may be happening there. I only know from just speaking to a handful of people and also what I, I read or see in the media, uh, player safety would be probably the number one reason why yeah. Uh, players may not go to China. And of course we know what I'm talking about. Um, and so I think that is first and foremost, when you look at, uh, I think there currently there have been 128 players in COVID protocol, uh, already in this season, which is, uh, I think 17% of the league. So mm-hmm. that's a high number that I think that grabs everybody's uh, attention. First and foremost, in terms of boycotting, I haven't heard that. Uh, very much. I've heard uh, people and politicians, I believe, suggesting athletes should boycott the games. Now, that's a personal decision. That has nothing to do with me or what I think. Um, I I personally believe that the games, at least in terms of men's hockey, that may be in jeopardy simply because of COVID and COVID protocol and lockdown quarantine uh, if the players do choose to go to China. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's sure going to be interesting to see. I mean, it, it's, it's exciting to have, you know, uh, NHL athletes back in the competition. I think most people would agree. It makes it so much better. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm of the mind that if they can do it safely, I'd love to see it, but uh, very, very difficult situation, both politically and, uh, you know, as individuals, but uh, yes, it is. Yeah, and that's no. that's above my scale, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're not can't, making the call, huh? Can't make a great save on that one. <laughs> I, I, you know what? Here's how I look at things. Uh, I do three things when I make uh, my uh, my discussions or on social media in particular. I do usually about my wife and I 
Donna on our golf adventures, uh, our dining out adventures, and, and uh, mental health. And I try not to get political at all. That's, that's for other people to do. I'm just a, uh, a hockey announcer. Well, I think uh, that's, that's probably the right way to do it. I think that's a mentality, like I said earlier, and I think more people could adopt as well, too. So much respect for that. Uh, again, again, thank you so much for your time. We've been uh, talking with Kelly Rudy uh, for Ryan Cattermole and Tej Dollywall of the Larshcast. Thank you very, very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite.